Welcome to Idea Collider, a regular podcast hosted by me, Mike Rea, uh, where I speak with the people who I regard as the most interesting within the pharmaceutical space, or I talk with the authors of the books that I found most interesting on the subject of innovation. So, uh, enjoy. So, uh, welcome to uh, another uh, in the uh, series of Idea Collider, and I'm delighted to, uh, in the wake of their uh, placing in the Pharmaceutical Innovation Index, welcome Dan Skavronsky to the to, to the uh, podcast. Um, so, uh, rather than uh, beat about the bush, Dan, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your uh, route to, you know, where you are and how you got there? Yeah, sure, Mike. Thanks. Uh, and uh, maybe I start by thanking you for the opportunity to talk to you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be together here on, on the show. Uh, I'm Dan Skabrowski. I'm president of Lilly Research Laboratories. That's the part of Eli Lilly and company that's responsible for research and development of new drugs as well as business development. And uh, I'm also chief scientific officer as well as chief medical officer of Eli Lilly and company. Uh, I've been at uh, Lilly for a little more than 10 years, uh, really since Lilly acquired a biotech company, which I was the CEO of, CEO called uh, Avid Radio Pharmaceuticals. I was the founder of that company working in, in Alzheimer's disease. And uh, that's, the, that's what brought me to Lilly. Before that, I, I trained as a scientist, uh, MD, PhD, and then I went on to do a residency and pathology and a fellowship in neuropathology. So uh, many years of academic training before I became a biotech entrepreneur and then eventually a big pharma exec. That's, uh, that's interesting. And I'll, I will come back to that journey from you know, biotech CEO to large pharma and the kind of contrasts as, yes. you, as you get into it. I, I guess the first question is, which do you enjoy more? Well, the, the opportunity that uh, we have in, in large pharmaceutical companies is incredible. So I, yeah. I truly uh, enjoy it. it. It's the opportunity and, and privilege of a lifetime, really, yeah. to be able to direct R&D resources, talent, and, and dollars at such a scale to, to improve human health. And uh, it's never boring, that's for sure. There's, there's always something happening in the portfolio and uh, just uh, so, many, so much opportunity to touch people's lives uh, with, with new medicines that help sick people feel better. That's, that's yeah. what gets me up every morning. And I guess the last 18 months could have been the least boring of your career. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, and there, there's no place I would have rather been than yeah. at the helm of a big pharma company, R&D Org, at, at the moment when you know the biggest uh, public health crisis of, of our lifetimes, for sure, so far, maybe forever, I hope, it strikes. And uh, so it, it was uh, gratifying to be able to, to do something uh, we did our, our part in the fight against COVID, for sure. Absolutely. Um, and uh, and I guess probably on that subject, I mean, one of the questions that we've, you know, a lot of heads of R&D have faced is, you know, what have you done differently this year than before? And has it been something that you'll continue to do after this? Yeah, th there's a lot to be said about that topic. I mean, for starters, of course, our purpose has always been the same. Lily's this year we're celebrating our 145th anniversary, 145 years as a company under the same name in the same place with the same mission to, to make medicines from out of science, right, with, with the highest levels of quality. And, um, and, and yet, despite the clarity and consistency of our purpose, 
the last uh, 15 months have, have just made it so much more clear. Every employee has felt connected to that purpose. And, and I felt more connected to that purpose than ever before as we you know, threw ourselves in the fight against COVID-19. The first company with monoclonal antibodies uh, um, against uh, the virus, uh, which have been hugely uh, successful. We also are, I think, the only company that has both a, a therapy for um, uh, early you know, diagnosed patients in, in monoclonal antibodies and then also in hospitalized patients. We have a, an immune modulator that was also under uh, emergency use authorization. We threw ourselves into testing and we set up testing labs um, uh, really to, to a huge extent. Um, we delivered direct testing for patients. We, we did it all without ever charging patient a penny mm -hmm. uh, and so we we've all felt so connected with, with our purpose and and then i think we just sort of take that forward now against all the other therapeutic areas right uh, so many people died of of covid19 for, for sure but the death toll from diabetes and obesity and, and related you know cardiovascular disease and and uh, liver disease and kidney disease is is even higher and uh, that's also a pandemic that we can we can fight. Um, Alzheimer's disease is is also uh, affecting millions of, of people around the world, and, and we can fight that. So so can we bring that same sense of urgency, the same purpose driven activity, the collaboration across other companies, across academia and, and the government? Uh, can we have an operational warp speed for Alzheimer's disease or for diabetes? I, I think that's what the future holds. Um, it won't be perfect. We won't be as good as we were against COVID, against every other disease, but we can't unsee what, what we saw there. And, and mm. we know what the potential really is when it's fully unharnessed now. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think that's such an interesting observation that, um, you know, the things that changed probably weren't the things that you did. They were the, they were the kind of either the decision making or the urgency or the passion or the, or the connectedness. And uh, yeah, you know, I've heard a few folks repeat that and say, well, we can keep some of that as we as we as we move forward. Yeah. And, and you know, it wasn't just uh, that our eyes were open to our potential. I, I would say our eyes were also open to some unfortunate things. There's always been inequality and equity in how healthcare is is distributed uh, uh, here in the United States and, and around the world, for sure. Co COVID-19 made that so much more clear, right? It, it was always there. Um, but with the pandemic, you were forced to come to terms with it. And so it reinvigorated our efforts around uh, equity in healthcare distribution, in diversity and inclusion, in our clinical trials, uh, in, in our partners around the world. It, it you know, redoubled our commitment to helping uh, lower and, and lower middle income uh, uh, countries and make sure they have access to medicine. So by opening our eyes to hardship, it, I think invigorated us to fight harder against it. Mm -hmm. There were other things too, of course, you know, it's probably been frequently said and uh, uh, that um, we've relied on the use of technology so much more because of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. That's helped in clinical trials. So in other words, when we couldn't have patients come to clinics, we saw them through telemedicine or the doctors saw them through telemedicine when they couldn't go to the academic center for their imaging study or their blood draw, we figured out how to have it done near their home or send a nurse to their home and, and get work done there. Those are things we're keeping. We don't want to go back to the old ways. Those things our patients appreciate in clinical trials, 
and they unlock participation in research to a much broader, more diverse audience. So that's good news that that will keep. Hmm. And, and I think that I've written a lot about this idea of serendipity, right? Is that, you know, it isn't about luck uh, per se, it's about seeing an opportunity in something that just happened and that sort of, and, and that's essentially what you're describing is that the opportunity presented by, by having to rely on technology like that actually does present for those that want to take that lesson forward uh, a, a real opportunity to do it differently. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's not that we didn't know it before or we weren't working on it. Everybody in the industry has been working on decentralized clinical trials and virtual clinical trials for, for the last decade. But you can look at the farm industry and say we were laggards in the adoption of new technology and clinical trials compared to you know every other aspect of our daily lives, which is transformed by technology even before the pandemic. Clinical trials were still basically done the same way they were done. 20 or 30 or even 50 years ago. Mm. So it, it took a pandemic to, to force change. I, yeah. Why, why do you think that is? What's the, what's, the, what's the anchor to the way it was done rather than the way it could be? Yeah, change, change is hard for sure in, in every aspect of life, um, particularly in things as complex as drug development. It has to be one of the most complicated and risky and expensive endeavors in, in humanity to, mm. to develop new drugs. And so there's resistance to change in, in conservatism. I, I gave a, a, a talk to, to the, my teams and I said, look, uh, I, I know change is hard. I'm really proud of how we changed. It's hard to change during a pandemic for sure. But remember, it's even harder to change when there isn't a crisis. Yeah. And uh, we, needed, we needed a crisis to force some changes. And, and so I hope those will be positive changes around the conduct of clinical trials and around equity and healthcare distribution that, that uh, improvements will come. Yeah. And, and certainly that idea that you could, you know, hit uh, two things with one stone, if you like, on the, on, on the way yeah. forwards that, you know, this might solve for a lot of that. Um, so maybe to loop back to that kind of, the kind of culture of innovation within the organization, uh, I, I guess the first question is, you know, do you have a definition of innovation within Lilly that you work towards? Well, there's all kinds of innovation. And sometimes people say capital I innovation or a little, little innovation. But l let me start with the biggest kind of innovation that, that we think about. And, and for me, it's, it's just so clear. It, it doesn't happen that often, maybe once a decade or once every few years, if you're really, really good. A new medicine comes along that writes a new chapter in, in human history. And, and you never can look back and, and not recognize it changed everything. Mm -hmm. uh, for people with that disease. That's what we're going for. Uh, you know, our, our company has had this, this R&D organization now for, for more than 100 years. Uh, I'm the 10th person to lead it. And mm -hmm. my goal is that uh, during my tenure, uh, however long that lasts, that we have at least one of these game-changing innovations that, that rewrites medical history. And, and I can just count them off in our history of our company. We've been lucky you know, the modern Eli Lilly exists because of insulin. We didn't discover insulin, but we certainly um, were the first, among the first to, to recognize the potential to help, to help patients and collaborated uh, um, with, the, with the discoverers in, in Toronto to be the, the manufacturer of, of most of, of the insulin that was produced in the United States. Uh, that was a, a huge advance. No one can write the history of diabetes without talking about Eli Lilly and, yeah. and insulin. Yeah. We, we did the same thing with penicillin. We weren't the inventor for sure, but we, we were the leading manufacturer of, of penicillin to help the U.S. in, in World War II, mm -hmm. uh, which was a really important contribution to the, to the war effort. 
Vinca alkaloids, right? Vin Christine, Vin Blathine, literally, was literally scientists going to Madagascar, you know, jungles and, and bringing back periwinkles and, and isolating those chemicals, which changed the history of oncology and, and yeah. chemotherapies. Cephalosporins, Lily discovered the first cephalosporin, the second cephalosporin, the third, and that's part of the history of antibiotics that we wrote. Um, Prozac, right, the, the drug that was on the cover of Time magazine, it made, me, made us rethink about how, how we treat mental illness and, and how we think about depression, and, and we followed with Cebalta for sure. Those things come upon us, you know, once a generation or once a decade. It, and they're the innovations we're most proud of. Uh, maybe we've done something like that already with, with our COVID therapies. Maybe that's yet to come in, in Alzheimer's disease and our next generation treatments for uh, diabetes and obesity. I, I think it's it's likely we'll, we'll have more innovations like that. That's the big innovation. Those are the things that really matter for the history of humanity. And that's where we're focused. But we know to get those, we need the smaller kinds of innovations. We need innovations like I described in, in how we run our clinical trials. That, that's innovation also in, in how we do research in the, the types of technologies we bring and how we organize ourselves and how we reach patients and, and reach doctors with new information. All of those are, are pieces of innovation that can help enable that sort of rewriting of medical history that, that we all desperately want to be part of. Yeah, that's interesting. So do you so pre-write medical history in, in that sense do you know that you have them before you before they're out before they're there i guess that's the you know, i yeah. guess that's the billion dollar question we we try of course uh, but we, we we also have to be humble uh, we, we get excited about molecules in early development and maybe this is it this we sometimes use the word game changer this could be a game changer for patients um most of the time we're wrong of course it's a tough business um but uh, we're inspired by that hope. And then as molecules get later in development, we, we get more and more confident if, if they stay on that game changer trajectory. You know, like I said, we have a couple in the company now, uh, particularly uh, a drug for diabetes and obesity and, and a drug for Alzheimer's that have that potential. But, you know, sometimes you don't even know until you have the, the benefit of time and, and history and you can look back and, and look back over the last decade and say, oh, that, that one really mattered. This other one that we thought would be great turned out to be just okay. Um, the, these things are hard to predict. So probably to get those, we need to aim for them, first of all, because if, if you never try to try to have those kinds of breakthroughs, you probably won't. And then second, we just have to be humble about our predictive abilities and therefore say, we need to launch a lot of new medicines and, and set a number of ships sailing because we're not sure which one gets to the destination, which are really uh, can become that kind of game changer. Yeah. So that, that those are both aspects of our strategy, focusing on the really big bets, but then also having enough sustaining innovation or other kinds of innovation, sometimes that we get surprised and one of them turns into that kind of a, a game changer. Yeah, so it's like the sort of Pixar version of Disney, I guess. You know, <laughs> you, you get the model dialed in, and then you try and do it more often. It's, uh, but you can't predict which one's going to be the winners. Um, but I'm interested because you use that kind of capital I, small I uh, innovation yeah. uh, piece. Uh, do you approach innovation? You know, does it have a division within the company as some companies do? Do, do you approach it as an active process? Yeah, it's it's an active process. Of course, in a pharmaceutical company, like the whole research and development organization, which is something like 7,000 people and 
a budget of six to seven billion dollars a year is is all we do is innovation. Um, we try to be deliberate about saying when when we're taking our moonshots um, and uh, when we're doing sort of sustaining innovation. That's also important and valued for patients uh, and, and necessary, but more incremental and not you know. Mm. Uh, um, not history making. Yeah. Uh, we, we need them both, and uh, uh, like I said, early in the discovery process, you don't really know for sure which 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 one you're going to get. Mm. And uh, and in terms of, I guess, the incremental improvements that you know, are, 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 is your organization set up so that uh, the people responsible for say clinical trial recruitment are continually innovating, and you know, how does all of that sort of join up together at, uh, into the big lessons? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. So, so those kinds of innovations in, in how we do our work, we do have dedicated groups, uh, really almost within every function. There'll be a group of people in that function who are in charge, not just of delivering the portfolio, you know, working on a particular molecule, but also reinventing how we do work. And, you know, is there, uh, uh, so, so like in the statistics group, there's a group of statisticians who are working on innovation in that they're working to develop and apply new statistical methods that, that can help us uh, analyze data. In the clinical trial operations group, there's groups On things like uh, transformation of clinical trials, every part of the company we have that from, you know, CMC to to uh, um, biotechnology to to clinical trials. So it's yeah. uh, it, it's uh, luxury, I would say, of, of being at a big pharma company that you can do that. At, at a biotech company, you, it's pretty much all hands on deck for the product that you have because right. getting that product developed is is what's key. At a big company, you have the luxury of also stepping back a little and reflecting on how you do the work and thinking of ways to do it better. And, and uh, that that's fun too. Mm. That's interesting. And, and I guess because, you know, that mantra of you get what you measure has, has, has long sort of pervaded this industry, which I think is probably true in clinical trials at least. But uh, in terms of culture, do, do you measure innovation within, within your group or is it a... Sure more organic piece yeah yeah of course we do uh, uh, big companies love to measure everything so uh, we have a couple different ways so so one and the most straightforward one is is we ask our employees uh, a lot of questions about innovation and how innovative they feel and how innovative is the company and their team and we track that how connected they are to our purpose which is you know as I said before to create medicines that make life better what what better purpose is there and and you know, you can just imagine um, through the course of the pandemic, our our teams have felt more connected to our purpose, more more innovative than ever before, which is great news. Um, but it, it's not enough if we all look at each other and and pat ourselves each other on the backs and say we're we're innovative. We we need external measures as well. So uh, we have a number of those. The the ones that I I watch most carefully are are um, probably focus on three external measures. So so one is. Um, really, it's, it's just the late stage portfolio. It's the outside view of how much value we're creating in, in the late stage portfolio. And um, that's easy because there's so many analysts that follow our industry. They put numbers on every drug. We, we download them and catalog them and see how Lily's doing versus other companies. Right now, we're number one. Our portfolio is the most highly valued of anyone in the industry, uh, which is great. Uh, that, that's super exciting. Of course, it's 
also highly volatile and yeah. um, hopefully we'll launch those extremely highly valued molecules and, and they'll turn into medicines and they'll be out of the portfolio and we'll have to replace them with new things. So that, that's what, what we expect. Um, but we measure that over long periods of time. So how much value did we create from research and development? And then we compare that to how much did we invest in research and mm. development? And that's sort of a productivity measure mm. over long periods of time. And we do that not just for Lilly, but for every company in our industry. And we see how we rank on that metric as well, because ultimately we want to differentiate, generate more value for patients, you know, and, and value assessed by analysts as a surrogate for value for patients versus um, uh, investment. So, so that's one thing we look at. Um, alongside that is, is the number of patients we reach each year. That's for our launch medicines. So it's easy to catalog revenues. It's harder to catalog lives impacted, but we yeah. try. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like I said, with respect to COVID, our, our eyes are open. Uh, lives count the same wherever they live. And if they're in a, a country that is, uh, has less GDP, they're going to pay less for medicines. That doesn't mean those lives are less important. So I think just counting the number of lives touched by residents is, is hugely important and then improving that every year. Um, uh, on the R&D side, in the early stage portfolio, the, the two metrics we look at that are easy, most easily quantified uh, objective are um, timelines. And, and uh, here over the last five or 10 years, Liz has gone, gone from probably the slowest in the industry to probably the fastest. Uh, mm -hmm. We just had a concerted effort on getting faster in, in drug development. We can talk about all the specific tools, but that's that's been huge. And our, our cycle time has, has come down over that time period by five years. We've taken five wow. years out of R&D. Um, and then uh, probability of success. So when you start a molecule, how, how often do you get a phase one? How often do you get to phase two, phase three and, and launch? And there again, we compare against peers, particularly late stage failures, which are just devastating the product because yeah. you put so much time and money and opportunity costs. So uh, uh, improving the probability of success, which now is, is quite good at Lilly, is, has been a huge journey and an important mission. I, I think if you could develop drugs with you know, at least average, if not better than average probability of success and do it faster than other companies, that, that's a good recipe for success. And uh, so that, that's important to us. No, it's interesting, especially the piece about the, um, the sort of value creation piece. Because I think that, you know one thing that we reflect in the index is that, uh, you know, as you say, we start with that basic question of the same molecule, two different companies, it will have different probability of success, right? You know, according to the criteria, yes. but the analysts themselves attribute less to the company than I think they should. You know, they're often looking at the molecule and doing their own assessments of where it would go in a generic pharmaceutical company. Um, but that ability right. to that ability to create value is clearly you know intrinsic to your organization. So it's just interesting to hear that you drill down into some of those pieces of purpose and speed and, and so forth. Yeah, I I think with respect to the analysts, of course they they try and predict revenues and, and then earnings. Um, and our sales and marketing group is in, in charge of, of revenues and, and mostly the earnings. Um, but the stock price depends on on the PE ratio. Right. <laughs> And uh, maybe the R&D group's in charge of the ratio, right? Because it's, it represents the excitement over the future and the sustainability of, of innovation in the company. And so it, we, we watch that also. And uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting because, you know, it does come down to humans and the decisions that they make collectively as a, as a group. And I think that people do underestimate the, 
you know, that organizations can achieve great success or not. And there's no such thing as an average pharmaceutical company. So, um, you know, some companies have, you know, enjoyed very little success over the last few years, despite spending the same amount of money that Lily has, I think. And, yes. um, and I think that's where you start to say, well, look, this is where teams are not the same, even when they're playing with the same level of investment. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and I, I think, you know, uh, there's also, there's just so many traps and pitfalls that an organization can fall into. And, you know, it, it, it's a complicated business for sure. And um, we're often on the, the horns of a dilemma, which are, you know, there, there's sometimes there's really the great ideas and, and the huge game changing molecules that I described. It, it feels good to say, we're gonna divert all of our resources into these few projects. Um, but then eventually those will become great drugs for sure. And, and, you know, generate tremendous value for patients. The, the amazing thing about our industry and, and probably unique is one day they will be generic and, uh, right. they'll be gone. Yeah. And, and so you, you have to have a continual flow of innovation every decade. It's a whole new slate of products that we have to reinvent ourselves. And so you can never let your foot off that gas of, of innovation and say, I'm, I'm just going to, you know, maximize the, the assets I have. You always need to be asking what's next and what's next. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, because you've seen life from both sides of biotech and, you know, the, the sort of development within Lilly, you know, what, what would you say have been the kind of major learnings over that period of, you know, either of, you know, what was great about biotech, what's great about large pharma, you know, what would you have done differently had you had your time over again? Oh, yeah, I'm not much one for thinking about doing things differently. I, I'm pretty satisfied. But I, I think the, you know, the, the thing about pharma that we have that, that's just unparalleled is, is the resources, the people and, and the money and the stability of that and, and continuity of that, which then leads to institutional learning and development of expertise and, and really excellence, you know, investing in, in functional know-how and, and, and technologies. And, and so the, that's just incredible. What's incredible about biotech is the conviction, right? It's, it's often, you know, a sink or swim around the, the conviction around an asset or a technology or an idea. Uh, that's valuable. Um, the focus that comes with that conviction and, and comes with the uh, often the inadequate resources forces you to focus on, on the best opportunities. Um, uh, that's hugely valuable. And, and then probably, you know, the opposite of, uh, again, you know, the, the pharma company, which you have the stability, which is, you know, uh, uh, from, from the perspective of investment and career, because you don't have that in biotech. Uh, you got to sweat the small stuff and the big stuff. And, and so there's this personal involvement of leaders in biotech companies th that are, um, that, you know, their, their lives are at stake as much as, as every employee's, meaning they're often involved in, in the details of clinical trial execution or regulatory strategy or regulatory interactions or um, discovery strategies or, or decisions. I think that matters, actually, and and so what I've tried to do at at Lilly, and and I'm not, you know, fully successful here for sure, is to try and marry the best of both worlds. It's easy to say, but 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 not not easy to do. Hmm. Um, and so within the the walls of a large pharmaceutical company with the resources, create smaller groups, um, often that still look like biotech companies. So we actually have 
biotech companies that we've acquired over the years, including the company that I came from 10 years ago, uh, Avid, that that, like still exist as biotech companies within our walls uh, operating in in the same way. The the biggest one is is Loxo Oncology, um, uh, an oncology company we bought. Not only did we bring them in and, and sort of say, keep doing what you're doing, we gave them uh, the rest of the oncology portfolio and said, also run yes. our portfolio that way. And, yeah. and let's see how, how we can scale the, this biotech company within our walls. That's going great. You know, yeah. hugely successful. And then there's a number of other smaller ones. So I, I think doing that and then within our own portfolio of, of internally uh, discovered molecules, we've tried to set ourselves up uh, a little bit more like biotech companies. It's, you know, as I said, imperfect. But one thing uh, I did early in my tenures, I, I tried to abolish uh, as many committees as, as possible and uh, dismantle the bureaucracy that pharma companies rely on yeah. to, to run R&D. It's, it's a big enterprise. Um, that, that probably just needs to be cleaned out every couple of years of pharma companies because they, they creep back in. Yeah. But yeah. instead say, okay, we're going to set up the molecules in our portfolio essentially as little companies and each one will have a leadership team and each one will have a board of directors. And, and that's the way we'll provide the governance. Instead of the, the teams coming to committees for approval to go forward, the, the committee will stick with the, with the, with the team mm-hmm. and, and they'll have their board of directors, which will meet whenever they need to, like a biotech company. They're the ones who will allocate the budget over multiple years. They're the ones who will make go-no decisions and, and, and move the markets forward. So that's been hugely engaging, actually. My... Yeah. The, the teams love it. The, the people doing the work find it much, much more satisfying and, and faster decision-making. But what was surprising is, is the, the leaders of the, the various functions and committees who maybe, you know, you might've guessed would, would be opposed. They almost all tell me like, this is the best thing I've done in my career. Like I love being on the boards of these companies yeah. within Lilly, these, these boards of these teams because I'm closer to the projects and more engaged in the projects than I've ever been, yeah. uh, which is, which is hugely fun. So that, that seems to work well, but you know, like I said, it, it's a constant challenge and, and constantly it, it is, you know, the main part of my job, I think is, is focused on, on bringing those two worlds together and getting the best out of them. That's really interesting. And, and apologies for not knowing that in advance. It's uh, um that approach isn't common in, in our industry. The, the idea that you would uh, delegate decision-making or, or sort of timeliness, because people do seem to continue to rely on the six monthly reviews and the toll gates and the, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the reliance on prediction instead of uncertainty. The um, mass production of R&D, yeah. which hasn't really been super successful. Right? No, no, quite the opposite. It's, it's almost been, uh, you know, unsuccessful, but we keep doing yeah. it anyway because it's it's comfortable. Um, yes. But the thing about culture is interesting. And you mentioned Loxo. You know, it was a question I was going to ask you. Is uh, you know, often we see companies come into organizations that are allowed to be who they are for a while, and then they get subsumed. You know, um, at, at some point because they're often the more successful part of the company. So I'm thinking of like Metamune or Genentech, or, you know, they then become the organization. Um, but one of the things we've seen with uh, other companies that acquire is that the, so the decisions that you'll take in say hepatitis C are not the same as you might take in oncology. So as soon as you start centralizing the decision-making, uh, you've got a bunch of people that you're either teaching about oncology or you're teaching about hepatitis C or um, in order to make a decision with the information they're presented. So, that 
delegation of uh, decision making is is kind of a potent um, insight into the into the way that you're running things. Yeah, well, of course, though it it all relies on and assumes that you have great people, and mm -hmm. and so obviously that's the, you know anyone will say that's the most important ingredient here. If, if you have great people that you can trust, um, why do you think? Uh, why would you be uncomfortable delegating to them? And particularly, it's easier when it's a biotech company on the outside that you've acquired and you say, well, look, we paid billions of dollars because we like the decisions they've made over the last few years. It's easier in that case. But of course, internally, we have great people also. And, and uh, um, it is challenging, uh, mm -hmm. of course, and uh, giving up uh, power and delegating to others is, is not easy and something we all struggle with. Yeah, it's kind of quiet, power, I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Whenever people tell me about their best career experiences at Lilly or, or anywhere, probably they always say it's you know I was working on a small team, there was time pressure, it was really important for the company, and it was just delegated for us to figure it out, and 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 we did it. Yeah. That's all. Like, and I can think in my own career as well. Those are the most exciting things when you're in the in the trenches with a with a team you trust working on a project and it's all up to you all to, to fix it or, or solve it or, or make it into medicine that's what's rewarding and so we we gotta think of ways to give our employees and our teams that experience yeah yeah and no sometimes it, it, i do it myself i i like to be involved in certain projects yeah well I've, I've often seen people's eyes light up when you know when they've had to go back into a skunk works and you know the leaders of the organizations are now hands-on and you see their eyes light up when they're discussing that uh, that experience because I think that the daily grind of the process can sometimes become overwhelming. That's right. Yeah, but the scalability of that approach is is limited too, right? How many mm -hmm. projects can I be personally involved in? Surely, I, I was highly involved, still am in, in our COVID response efforts. I'm highly involved in Alzheimer's. That's my my background. Mm -hmm. um, but at that that level of involvement, I couldn't do it. And in other areas, I don't have the expertise or, or the bandwidth. Yeah. So, you know, having a, a, a cohort of, of leaders that can do it in different areas is, is hugely important. Um, and uh, uh, talent is, is the rarest and, and most important commodity. I, it's not a commodity, most important asset. I, I think, um, and, and there again, there's differences between biotech and, and pharma. Uh, right now, you know, biotech is an alluring place for people to go and, and uh, um, many talented scientists and leaders want to be in biotech. On the other hand, I try and show them the great things about pharma and, and the idea that it, it really comes back to the the breadth of the impact we can have in a big mm. company. Mm. And if you can get the best of both worlds, um, even better. I mean, I've always said that the, the, the problem is that you know portfolios are typically diverse, right? They've got you know, numbers of different shots on goal. But yeah. the number of approaches that companies take to developing medicines is usually like you know one, uh, so they don't have any diversity of approach either. So they don't, they they're not really doing experiments in in, in that sense. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, when when we think about biotech companies, I, people usually jump to the, the asymmetry of financial rewards that yeah. biotech companies can give outside rewards, outsized rewards for risk taking. But but I haven't found that to be the problem. I I think. It's it's actually just the connection to the work and being able to see your personal impact on the work. Hmm. That's the valuable part about biotech, and that's what you have to create a big pharma. Is people have to see that their work, exactly how their work matters and how it impacts yeah. the, the project, and, and that they're making a difference. Yeah. Then they're fully rewarded.
Yeah, and Umbo had the same question for uh, for uh, one of the guys at Google X about their kind of incubator group. Because uh, I'd always assumed that there'd be some incentive to start a company at Google uh, that you might get paid for having been the guy that started AdWords or or the, or the woman yeah. that started the kind of you know, the revenue model. Um, and they have 330 different teams that are essentially internal teams. So the question was, how do you incentivize them? And so, well, uh, so what do they get? They, they they're allowed to do it. That's it. You know, there's no incentive. There's no stake. Um, yeah, because the energy that they apply when they're allowed to do it is is huge. Yeah, and and it, I mean, if 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 Google can motivate people because they get to work on AdWords, I mean, we have no problem. We're motivating people <laughs> to work on a cure for Alzheimer's right. disease or, yeah. or cancer. Sure, yeah. of course, that's easy to motivate people for. So, so in some sense, managers of pharma company, our our job is easier than just about any other company because the work we do is no, inherently know. interesting, inherently challenging, and inherently good. For, yeah. for humankind. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Um, where the time's going to run away from us, and I often don't get to ask the kind of interesting ones about you uh, okay. towards the end. So I'd be interested. So, I mean, you've taken a career through Alzheimer's, and you're, I guess you're still involved in Alzheimer's, but I don't want to assume that's at the core of it. So what drives you personally then? It, it's, the, it's the impact. Uh, you know, I, I guess when I... When I thought about uh, pursuing a career in, in clinical medicine, you know, you, the impact is the number of patients you touch in a day. Um, that's great, and, and you can help a certain number of people. Maybe in academic medicine, it's a bit more. You can write some papers that people will read, and maybe they'll go on and do some great things from that and advance the science and eventually lead to medicines. In, in biotechnology and you have a chance to develop a couple of drugs, maybe in a great career in biotech, you could be responsible for a few. In a pharma company, it's dozens of, of drugs. Um, in, in the sort of decade that I've been in, deeply involved in research and development at, at Lilly, um, we'll, have, we'll launch 20 molecules, 20 new medicines, and some of them are, are really big ones. And that's a, a huge impact. And um, so for me, it's just you know, waking up every day with really challenging problems where I get to do science, which I want to do, right? And there's lots of challenging science to do. And, and you know, you could be building rocket ships or electric cars or whatever. That's great. But doing challenging scientific things that impact millions of people who are sick and needy and, and at their lowest and, and you can help them and save their lives, that's so rewarding. So it's easy to, mm. to do that. And how, and how do you get to be the best sort of Dan Skabronski that you can be for the role? Oh, I don't know. I have, uh, I've yet to figure that out. I, I'm still on my journey and, uh, and learning. Um, you know, for, for me, I, I think as a scientist, it's, it's a process of experimentation. And um, I try different things. And, and then I try to observe and learn and change based on, on feedback. Um, that, that's probably at, at the heart of it. I, I, I consider myself to be an introspective person and, and reasonably self-critical. So that, that probably helps me. Yeah. And in terms of work-life balance, because this is clearly one of those roles that could be hugely overwhelming for, in terms of you know, yeah. the, the day begins and the day ends late or... It does, yeah. So <laughs> I, I could probably get better at work-life balance. But when you have meaningful work that's important for you, it's it's easy to to be dedicated to it. It's it's also probably easy to overdo it. 
certainly uh, during the course of 2020, I, I probably tested my limits um, in terms of the number of hours and number of consecutive days I could work that number of hours. Um, so I, I know what that is. I, I don't want to do that my whole life. But when, when called upon to do it, I, I will. Um, the rest of the time, I, I try and balance really that with my family. And uh, I've got uh, a wife and two wonderful daughters, and I love to spend time with them. So uh, that, that's uh, what I protect my time for. Is, and and is I bet they keep you grounded as well. So. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and and uh, children keep you modern, too. Um, my kids yeah. are, I think, more in... in more just inherently connected to the issues of our times than than I would be otherwise, and and I often learn a lot by talking to them and, and bouncing things off of them, which mm. which I appreciate. They're mm. they're at that age now where they they uh, they're have a, a lot of uh, valuable things to to share. And it's easy to have that kind of blindness, that kind of cultural blindness, right? That you know that I think we are being made aware of by you know the, those folks who are younger and the conversations that they're having with us now. Yeah, yeah. Th this may be a, one of those periods of time of, of rapid change in cultural norms, yeah. um, which is always challenging, I think, for the previous generation, yeah. which I quickly become part of, and uh, um, to, to adapt to. So I, it's it's another thing that I think about a lot, and I want to be a, a modern leader. And so I'm constantly challenging myself, even things that are outside of my comfort zone, is this the future? And if it is, I should just lean into it and, and let's make it happen if it's the right thing to do. Mm. Um, that, that's probably happening a lot in, in a lot of different companies right now, but it, it's an extra challenge, but extra fun too. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so in terms of the next five years, you know, what, the, what, does, what does that hold? You know, what, are, what are your ambitions? And I have a couple of those game changers. I, I really believe it. Um, you know, I, I talked a couple times about our, our drug for Alzheimer's disease. I, I just think we and, and the industry really, science is on the verge of a major breakthrough in Alzheimer's disease, a, a disease that we haven't touched really with science um, ever really. Uh, I think we're about to unlock it. It's a combination of diagnostics and therapeutics and really understanding the heterogeneity of the disease um, that's, you know, super exciting and, and I'm confident will happen. I think uh, another area is in, in metabolic disease, diabetes, obesity. The challenge, of course, for, for both of these types of innovations is going from you know right now where we are, which is we've unlocked the science and we've translated that into some powerful medicines, to making those medicines into widely available global solutions for hugely important disease. And Probably earlier in my career, I, I wouldn't have recognized the challenge of that half of the business. Mm -hmm. um, but in, in some sense, that's equally challenging. And uh, just creating a medicine and, and you know, even getting it approved isn't enough. You got to get it available to people and get it used and make sure they have access and, and understand the right ways to use it. That's hard when you're changing medical care. It's easy when you're uh, next in class or me too right. drug or, or one more important option for patients or even even an incrementally better drug, we know how to slot that in. When, when it's a brand new standard of care, that's harder. Mm. Um, and uh, we shouldn't underestimate the, the, uh, the work that, that needs to be done to create that. Oh, for sure. And, and I guess one of my personal ambitions is that we see more of the uh, uh, innovation uh, culture 
applied to the commercial side of our business as well because i think you know typically we've gone about it the same way we always have and haven't really thought about it differently so nice to see fully fully agree yeah um there's so much opportunity there and and probably the the pandemic accelerates change there as well Hmm. um because you know for example sales reps calling on doctors in their offices or hospitals got pushed back and and relied more on digital means of communication and more on education rather than sales calls that's probably a change that that sticks and then sort of accelerates the transformation on the commercial side of things as well Mm, let's keep my fingers crossed um i guess my last question is uh is is related to books uh you know we run this as a book club as well so uh, are there any uh, books that you'd recommend to anyone that like to know more about your philosophy or ideology I don't know. I, I find it hard to recommend specific um, ones, ones of these books. I, I, I've read like most of the classic business advice management books. Uh, I, I, I enjoy them for the most part. I take something out of each one uh, that I add to my you know, overall arsenal of tools. Almost all of them are too narrow in, in my mind in, in prescribing one particular way of thinking about business problems or one particular outlook on, on innovation. But they're all useful in that they give you another tool or another vocabulary. So I, I usually also find those books to be a, a one-day read. So I, I sit down on a weekend usually and spend a few hours and get through it. So uh, most then of, of my daily reading is, is actually fiction and uh, which I enjoy and, and I need need a little bit of time to unplug also and, and that provides. Do you have any that. recommendations? Well, everybody's got different tastes, I would say. <laughs> Sorry, you won't draw me draw me out too easily, but uh um yeah, I I like literary fiction. Nice, nice. And it's a, such a rich uh, seam in there as well. And I think it's um actually answering questions before about the kind of uh, the perspectives that art music and literature bring to the challenge so i think if you approach a challenge straight ahead you often miss the the chance to i guess approach it obliquely but it yeah. sounds like you know obliquity is a kind of constant within your uh, your, your background as well yeah that that could be true uh, you know of course our, our brains probably just need different different types of stimulation to, mm. to be healthy and and art and, and music and literature are all part of them probably there, there's not room for everything in life i don't spend a lot of time Anytime on television or on, uh, um, you know, watching professional sports or things like that. So uh, that that's how I fit things in. But everybody's got different interests. Fantastic. Um, last question: Is there anything that you wish that I had asked you that uh, uh, that you'd like to get out there before we before we close? No, I, I, you did a great job. Thanks, thanks for all the questions. I hope it's interesting, and uh, I hope. Uh, you know, people find it inspiring a little bit, and and what we need, of course, and and I, I hope for is more young people who are um, smart and motivated and highly trained uh, to come join us in in this pursuit of of turning science into medicines. Um, you know, it, like I said before, there's all sorts of ways to to find meaning in, in life. This is an important one. Um, but uh, it's it's also at risk. So if we don't have a steady stream of, of new, uh, smart people wanting to devote their lives to this field, it could stagnate. We've seen that in, in other fields. So uh, maybe here too, uh, maybe I'll come across as too optimistic, but maybe here 
you know, the experiences of the last year help us that um, the world sees that, that science and technology applied to medicine is saving us from, from, from COVID-19 mm. in the form of, of vaccines and therapies. And uh, uh, it's, a, it's a good thing to devote your life to. Definitely. And I think also hopefully seeing some faces. So I think, you know, I'm always, uh, so, you know, hate the, uh, the Hollywood version of pharmaceutical companies, you know, typically bad actors and evil people. But the, I think the more, um, you know, C-suite folks that, uh, that people get to meet, I think the more they realize that, that you know, some people with some real passion and uh, uh, commitment to, 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 to doing good things. So, um, yeah, I you know, hope you're right. Yeah. You've been a great example of that. So, Dan, thank you so much. Thank uh, you, Mike. It's great talking. If people want to know any more about you, are there, is, there, is it easy? Are you on Twitter or any, any other place they can find you? Uh, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, not yeah. on Twitter. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. So, Dan, thank you so much, and, uh, and good luck with, uh, with the next few months. Great. Have a great day. Enjoy the ocean. Thank you. Bye-bye.